Good morning. Will you open up with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21? If you will open up with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. We are in this sermon series that's entitled A Strong Tower. Uh, we've been taking a look at Proverbs uh, chapter 18, verse 10 specifically, that says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it, and they are saved. And we believe that, and so we've been taking a look at the different names of God, the names to which we can run to find shelter, the place that we can run and find the power and might of God. And today we're going to talk about El Olam. Before we do so, let's uh, begin in a word of prayer. Father, I, I just uh, am grateful for your love. We just stand amazed that though we fail so many times, your love continues to be in our lives a steady a steady love that never fails. Father, I'm grateful for your word and that we can gather together and, and hear and read and fellowship with one another to grow so that we can be more strong in our faith, so we can have the witness that we need to have in this world, that we can be the light in this darkness. And I pray, Father, that you will just guide and lead this time as we study. I pray for wisdom through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was Buffalo, New York, that reported that a JetBlue pilot was pulled from his cockpit of a plane about to depart the Buffalo-Niagara International Airport back in May. This man had a blood alcohol level four times the legal limit for pilots. The pilot was passing through security when one of the officers noticed that he looked impaired, and police administered a breathalyzer test, and he notched .17. Now, the legal limit to fly is .004%, and that's half of the limit to be able to drive. Pilots are not allowed to work in any crew position within eight hours of even drinking a drop of alcohol. So JetBlue relieved this pilot of his duties, but it really caused me to wonder, would you fly a plane with a pilot who even registered 0.003%? Would you fly on a plane with a pilot who's ever even gotten a DUI? I don't know, if you're, if you're anything like me, you'd probably answer absolutely not to both of these questions. Why? We want the pilot to be sober and completely in control. It was last summer that I found a plan for an Adirondack chair. I was using two-by-fours to build this thing. I was excited to get to work, and it took me quite some time. I'm not the best at woodworking, 
But I was super pleased with the results. The chairs were, in my opinion, comfortable. They looked nice. And they had these neat floating arms. Floating arms is an important part of this story. You remember we got hit pretty bad recently with some storms. We still have a tree up here that's down. And our stringer lights came off of a pole. So all I had to do was walk over to our shed and get our stepladder, take it over to the pole and rehang those stringer lights. But what did Jeremy do, you asked? Well, I just moved that Adirondack chair over to the stringers and I stood upon the floating arms. They did not float. I ripped those screws straight out of the wood. It collapsed. Jessica was over there with me. She didn't laugh at me, praise the Lord. She thought I was dead because I just laid there. But it was laying there in just complete, utter embarrassment that I, I stood on this Adirondack chair that I knew would break. I was more embarrassed than hurt, right? Art is one of those things that begins a way that we can connect with our creator. When I built and created that Adirondack chair, I was tapping into the creative juices of my father, the creator, who created me in his likeness. My creation, my creation, had many flaws, and I'm reminded that God is so much better at creating. But within this conversation of creation and building, I'm reminded of one of the hardest questions for Christians. If God created me, who created God? That's an important question, right? Because I know that if something I create can fall apart so easily, I mean, I'm 240 pounds, it wasn't that easy. But something that fell apart so easily, what about something that God creates? Or what about, was God created? Could he fall apart? The theological terminology for this is a seity. It means that God was self-originated. You go ahead and lodge that into your theology vocabulary if you want to. He was self-originated. He wasn't created. God wasn't created. God has always been. And if we believe that, if we believe in a seity, then we know that we can trust him. That brings us to our passage today. Abraham, in our passage in, in Genesis 21, is close to 112 years old. Luke remembers Abraham when he was younger. Dale, you guys hung out, yeah. Now, Abraham and his family at 112 years old was hanging out in the land of the Philistines. Abraham had several interactions with the kings of that region in the past. A king, Abimelech, if you remember, 
and the general of his army approached Abraham. They personally acknowledged that Abraham was blessed by God. They personally asked for some kind of treaty between Abraham and his family and his clan and this whole group of people living in the Philistines, a treaty between King Abimelech and him. This treaty is incredibly important in Genesis chapter 21 because it acknowledges that these people in the land of the Philistines don't know God, they don't worship God, but they recognize the power and presence of God in Abraham. It's also important to, because it guarantees the proper control of where Abraham is staying and shares the limited natural resources like water. So here they are in the middle of this treaty, King Abimelech acknowledging that God, the creator, the real God, the God has, has blessed Abraham's life. They're working out and negotiating the pieces of this treaty of where they'll drink water and what part of land they will be staying in. And Abraham, in a very surprising fashion, says this in Genesis 21, verse 25. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. So as they're working through this details of this treaty, Abraham boldly confronts the king about a stolen well. And that takes me by surprise because Abraham has been incredibly passive when it comes to confrontation. Abraham, if you read the first 20 chapters of Genesis, is not super good at confrontation. When he was confronted in Egypt about his wife, he said, actually, she's my sister. Please don't kill me. And he did this very same thing with Abimelech. In order not to have any kind of confrontation, he says, no, nah, she's my sister. She's not my wife. Don't kill me. Abimelech, also surprisingly, agrees to resolve the situation. The treaty is finalized. And then we get to our passage. Genesis 21 and verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. There he called on the name of the Lord, El Olam, the eternal God. Here is the first time the word olam in the Hebrew is used in the book of Genesis. It means that God is eternal, that God is everlasting. And he planted a tamarisk tree, right? Uh, we don't have tamarisk trees in Knoxville, although with the uh, heat and humidity, maybe we might be able to grow some, but they're common types of trees in the Mediterranean region. They would provide shade for Abraham or anyone who's drawing water from this well so their livestocks could drink. It's a practical tree. 
But I think the tree also serves as a symbol for El Olam. Because the tamarisk tree is an evergreen tree. What happens to the leaves of evergreen trees? They ever stay green, right? It speaks to the eternal God. You see, Abraham didn't plant this tree by accident or without thinking about the significance of what was happening that day. The tree, the well, the worship of El Olam all serve to point to Yahweh who is everlasting and whose promise never ends. It points to a God whose promises never end. I like working with Shar because sometimes we think on the same level. And in preparation for the sermon, I honestly didn't even look at the scriptures you chose. But the same scriptures you chose, I chose to point out this God who is everlasting. And I want to start in Psalm chapter 90, Verses 1 through 2, because it speaks to who we serve today. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is God from everlasting to everlasting. Thomas Aquinas once pointed out that if you're hiking and you're hiking up a mountain, you can only see what's in front of you and what's behind you. And you can see down the mountain as well, but it's hard to see anything that's happening above you. But if you're hiking above that hiker, you can not only see the hiker hiking, but you can see what's in front of the hiker and you can see what is behind the hiker. And Thomas Aquinas uses that illustration to point out our everlasting God. Now think about all of the amazing stories we read in the Bible where our God and creator entered into our time and space to help. You remember God in, in, uh, in Exodus, when we were talking about Moses, God caused the sea to part, didn't he? When uh, Moses was fighting, God caused time even to stand still. God caused a donkey to speak. God caused the walls of Jericho to fall. God saved Jerusalem from the great Assyrian Army and God entered time and space in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. And Jesus, while he was on earth, healed the sick, walked on water, fed thousands, raised the dead, and only a God who exists eternally outside time and space has the ability to do that. And I think about the promise that's found in Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know, have you not heard that our Lord is the everlasting God? Amen? He is the creator of the ends of the earth. And God will not grow tired, and God will not grow weary in his understanding 
no one can fathom. Our creator God has the power to exist eternally without growing tired or faint. Could you imagine if God responded to your prayer audibly and said, I'd love to, but I'm golfing today, right? What if the sun didn't rise one morning because God slept in that morning? No, he doesn't grow tired. He doesn't grow faint. He doesn't need a nap. God exists eternally. Bottom line, bottom line, we can trust God. His eternal nature allows us to trust him. I was reading reading an article this week where somebody wrote this as their title of their article. God is not eternal. The point that the author was trying to make is that God is not eternal because God is timeless. It ended up being a matter of semantics, in my opinion. But as I was reading through the comment threads, don't you guys love comment threads? Armchair, never mind. But you watch, and I was reading this back and forth about God being timeless and God being eternal, and this person makes his case, and that person makes his case. He can't be eternal because he can't enter time. It was just a mess. These guys were smart. They made good arguments. But at the end of the day, I only thought about one quote. A God small enough to understand isn't big enough to worship. A God who's small enough to understand and comprehend, right, is not big enough to worship. We can trust God because we can't fathom his mysteries. Now, there's a lot in Scripture I don't understand. But there's one that stands out to me that I feel like we need to jump on we need to talk about, because when we're talking about trusting God, and we're talking about his eternal nature, and we're talking about how he enters our time and space, and he heals uh, lepers, and he raises the dead, and God uh, causes a donkey to speak, we have to ask some questions about God and whether or not we can trust him. Now, Jesus could walk on water, But why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead but leave John the Baptist in the grave? Jesus described John the Baptist in Matthew 11 as the greatest of all prophets. He said, among these born of women, there is not risen anyone greater. And yet, Jesus chose to leave John the Baptist in the grave and he raised some guy named Lazarus and some widow's son that has no name. A God small enough to understand isn't big enough to worship. And I think many of us have similar questions, don't we? Jesus can walk on water, but why hasn't he cured cancer? Jesus fed thousands but there are people dying of malnutrition. 
What do we do with those kind of questions that hit home for many of us? Without a timeless God who holds eternity in his hands, we are left without hope. Our questions are not answered. But if we trust an eternal life, we are left with a glimmer of hope, are we not? If we trust an eternal life, we're left with a glimmer of hope. We think about Jesus Christ in his resurrection. And Paul has said, the Apostle Paul has said, without the resurrection, what, what do we got, right? Because without the resurrection, there's no hope. All we have left is what's here and now. Cancer, malnutrition, death. But with the resurrection, we're inspired by hope. El Olam inspires us to live here and now in maybe a different way. Maybe the hungry would be fed if we fed them. Maybe the sick would be cared for if we, you and me, chose to care for them. The temporary nature of this world and the eternal nature of God causes us to live differently while we're here because we're inspired by hope. And that's what brings us around the table today. Hope that that body represented by the bread and that blood represented by the juice did in fact die on a cross. But the eternal God, El Olam, raised him from the dead. That's who we celebrate and worship today because it inspires hope for you tomorrow. As we approach the table, I invite you to go to one of these three stations. I've got one here, here, and there. Take a cup. There's two cups. They're stacked on top of each other. On the bottom cup is the bread. The top cup is the juice. And I want you to hold these emblems and imagine what your life would look like if you embrace the hope we have in El Olam. Nancy will come up after that, share with us a few thoughts, and we'll take those emblems together. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your resurrection that gives us hope. Hope of eternity that's found in who you are as El Olam, the eternal God. I pray, Father, that as we uh, gather around the table, that we can really reflect on who you are and what you've done. I pray, Father, that you'll guide and lead us to be hope, to be light, to be salt in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.